All right, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the well. If you're a guest with us, my name is Al. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to preach God's word. We're in a book called First Timothy. We've been studying it. We, go, we typically go verse by verse, book by book, uh, through or book by book, verse by verse through the Bible. Um, and so if you need one of those, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Take it, keep it, read it. And uh, this week, what we're looking at, what we're looking at is, is what is a deacon? That's where we're going. That's where we're going. Uh, before we get into our, our First Timothy passage, we need to give some context. Last week, we looked at uh, what is an elder, the qualifications of an elder. Uh, if you're a guest with us, when we use the word elder, we mean it in the term of pastor, overseer. We, we believe the New Testament uses that word interchangeably. And so uh, when we say elder, we mean pastor. When we say pastor, we mean elder. So we have elders. Uh, we have deacons, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and so... That's where we're at. And so before we get to um, what, what, what a deacon is as far as character qualifications, let's talk about what a deacon is. Where did that begin? And so uh, this, we go all the way back to Acts chapter 6. That's where we, we, we see um, deacons first. And so um, I want to just shameless plug, next week's Father's Day. We're going to have a special uh, Father's Day sermon, and then uh, so dads come on back. But then the, the week after that, we're going to start a new sermon series called Summer Sessions, where Alex and uh, Jonathan, two of our other elders, will be preaching through that the entire series. That's four weeks, so I'm excited about that. That's up and coming. I meant to say that on the front end. Now I'm saying it now. It's said. Uh, so what is a deacon? What is a deacon? As you know, many of you know, my, my firstborn son's named Deacon. He thinks he's one. He is not. He, is not a, he does not hold the office of a deacon. I do love uh, the word deacon. It means servant. Uh, my son is indeed a, a servant. But what is a deacon? The office of a deacon. What is it? And so here in Acts 6, we see where this is the first, the word's not used here, but, but the, the precedent is set here in Acts 6 for what a deacon will be in the, in the church. And so now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, people were getting saved, people were getting baptized, it was, the, the church was growing. A complaint by the Hellenistic, uh, the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected at their daily distribution. These are, uh, these are Greek um, women, uh, the, the widows, they were, they were not being fed, and so there was, uh, they were neglected. And so the 12, these are the 12 apostles, um, uh, they, they summoned the full number of the disciples. They got all their disciples together, they got the church together, they got the church leaders together and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, they're not saying we're above it. They're not, do not read into it and go, man, they're saying these, these church leaders are above waiting tables. Like they have this high, high job and... They are, they are not going to stoop low. That is not what they're saying at all. What he is saying is that they're, he, he's saying that, therefore, because they need to not neglect the preaching of God's word. He's saying both need to happen. Preaching needs to happen. Leading the mission needs to happen. Eldering, pastoring needs to happen. But also serving the widows. That needs to happen. What, what they're saying is this isn't a and or. This is a both and. Both must happen. So they're going together. How then, uh, with the increase in, in demands in ministry, the church is growing, people are meeting Jesus, needs are arising, the church has to be the church. What do we do? That's the question they're asking. How do we care for these, these widows? How do we, how do we love, lovingly serve them as it's right for us to do? James says it is a good religion to do so. How do we do this? And he says, they say, uh, 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, uh, full of the spirit and of wisdom. This is interesting. This is the job description for waiting tables. I just want you to see this is not just, this is, this is not about the task. This is about the character of these, these, these individuals who would be servants to the church, whom we're going we're gonna to look at those qualifications later, whom we'll point to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So you have these two offices, the elders and deacons who are working together. They're like a right foot and a left foot on a bicycle. You need them both in order to, to pedal forward and, and go straight. So the elders, their focus and their task is oversight. It's, it's oversight of the entire congregation. It's, it, practice, it practically works itself out through uh, teaching ministry, preaching Prayer, as we see here, shepherding, uh, leading. This is, this is what the elders are to do. And then the deacons, they are, their main task, or so the elders, their, their main task is theological oversight, but the deacons' main task is practical ministry. What we see here, practical ministry. That's their job. And so this is their, their main task. And, the, and if, if, the, if the church is going to be cared for practically, uh, it must be deaconed well. If the church is to be led uh, and, and not fall into false teaching and doctrine in, in uh, error, like Paul has told Timothy to, to guard and, and entrust and teach sound doctrine, the elders, elders must do their job. And so if the elders are derailed from their job and having to serve the tables like, the, like they are here, then uh, the theological oversight, the, the mission, gets, they get mission drift, and they're not able to go and, and follow what the Lord has, has asked them to do through the, through the Scriptures. They're not able to have time to pray. They're not have time to, to teach. Some of you think prayer is like just, you know, it's just something you should do probably. No, it's the power of the church. The church will have no power if its pastors are not praying. Moreover, the church will have no power if its people aren't praying. I mean, I love you guys. You are a praying church. We have a whole prayer meeting that's led by some of our deacons that right before this service starts, they're getting together every week praying. Just praying for you, praying for your kids. So if you're a guest with us, your kids have been prayed over. That their ministry, you as a parent have been prayed over. They're just laboring uh, in service and sacrificing time to pray. And, and the deacons love to do it. The elders love to do it. Everyone in the church should love to pray. But it is a must for an elder. If the elders do not do it, then the church will go astray. And so they were getting sidetracked, side not, not by, oftentimes this is a reality. You often get distracted by doing good things. You're like, I was just, and this is, this is, you're like in your job and your work, man, I just got distracted from my tasks, what I'm supposed to be doing, what my job requirement told me to do because I was doing some really good stuff. Serving these Hellenistic uh, widows was a good thing, but it wasn't appropriate for the elders to be distracted from their, their primary ministry. So the deacons were, were enlisted. That's what we see here. So here at the well, our deacons, they do this type of practical ministry. It's our first priority is to, to care and check in for the orphans, the widows, the, the sick, the single moms, the stuff like that. That's the first primary. If after we do that, then we have the, and they have the bandwidth, then we, the, the deacons endeavor in checking in on absent team members, those who, who, who may uh, not be able to, something's happened and we need to come care and we don't know about it. And oftentimes that's what happens when, you know, something happens and you don't tell anyone about it. And like, we gotta, deacons gotta go, they gotta be hound dogs and go, figure it out, sniff it out. How can we care? Additionally, uh, in addition to that, the, the, the deacons help serve you. 
not like you're a card-carrying member of some, uh, you know, fraternity type group in that or like some country club and you need you pay your dues and so the the, the deacons serve you they, they serve at your pleasure no they serve at king jesus's pleasure and it's king jesus's pleasure to serve to serve you in addition to as the, our deacons have bandwidth and what we hope to see long term is our diaconate to be able to focus not just on uh, on practical ministry inside the church but then how can we also uh, provide other opportunities to care felt needs care for those who are not in our church who are in the city who are not a part of a church lord willing we can get to that point where we can actually uh, care for widows and orphans that are not ours we do some to some degree but the priority is first who, who are those in the church that need to be cared for? Widows, orphans, practical ministry needs. Single moms, sick, hurting, those people. Who do we, who do we care for? How, how can we care for them? Our deacons do that. So if you, if you want to think of a deacon as really a pastoral assistant of some sort, uh, they, they assist the elders. So uh, they're under the direct oversight of the elders. The elders are the ones who oversee and have authority. The deacons are, are, are the ones who, who serve. They, they get their task list from the elders. They get, they, they get whatever, that's what we see here. Uh, the, the, there, was, there was a need for um, the, these particular widows to be served. So the, the pastors got together and said, we got to pick some people for a particular task. Meaning this, that as needs arise, our, our demand for deacons arise. A few months ago, we, we installed more deacons. Why? Because our demands increased. And so from time to time, we have to in, in, enlist more deacons to do more ministry as, God, uh, as, as opportunities arise, just like here. So we see this precedent being set forth here in Acts chapter 6. I want to be clear, though, that uh, there are two distinctions uh, between the, that are very important distinctions between an elder and a deacon. It is that elders are required to be able to teach and, are quiet and, and also exercise authority. Deacons are not required to teach. That doesn't mean they don't have a teaching gift. It just means that in the office, the, when they're playing the role of a deacon, when they're, they're deaconing, that is not a teaching role. It's a servant role. Uh, additionally, when they're, deacons may one day, some of them may be elders. Who knows what God does? But the, the, the bottom line is uh, we don't, deacon, a, the diacon is not like, a, it's not like a stepping stone to become an elder. It's not. It's not. Now, some deacons may become elders. See, Stephen, we're not going to get into him. There's a man here in, in Acts who was a deacon and then later became a preacher and then got you know, killed for Jesus. Maybe that happens to some of our deacons. That would, you know, make the news. Uh, but right now, it's our, the deacon's role as a deacon, when they're functioning as a deacon, is, primary, it is practical ministry. It's not oversight. It's not authority. And it is, it is uh, not in teaching. But teaching and authority lies and is, is, is responsible to the elders. Spoke at length on that last week. And so if you think about it organizationally, we are elder-led in authority. We're deacon-served. And then the members of the church respond to the leadership of the elders in the service of the deacons. Because we're going to see here in, in our text that uh, one, of the one of the things we must do for a deacon is they must have uh, been tested first. Which means that a deacon should be deaconing long before they're a deacon. So that means everyone in the church ought to be serving. So the deacons do help the rest of the church serve. So now let's get into some specifics, some qualifications. What is the character of a deacon? He says this, 
1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. He says, deacons likewise. This is servants. That's what the word means. It's a servant, bond servant. The deacons likewise, uh, they're like the elders, uh, meaning like he had just talked about the elders. Uh, like the elders, the deacons need to have lives shaped by Jesus. And so what does that look like? Is that the, the deacon must be dignified. First thing, a deacon must be dignified. I know many of you don't walk around using that word a lot, but dignified means worthy of respect. That's what a deacon is to be. They're to be holy. They're to be honorable. They're to be commendable. In short, they're to be an example to others. They're they're to be dignified. They're not to be double-tongued. That means they're to be sincere. That means their yes is yes. Their no is no. They're they're, they're honest. They're, They're transparent. They're authentic. They're not to be addicted, verse 3, not addicted to much wine. This is not just talking about wine, beer, any, any substance, meaning that they are to be self-controlled and, and without addictions. They're to be not greedy for dishonest gain. Oftentimes, uh, the, the deacons are, are, are involved in some practical ministry that, that takes budget line items that is uh, caring for other people. they got to be honest, above approach with their money so that we know that they're, the deacons, like Judas, aren't swindling and uh, taking the money back. And so they, they must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Here's the reality. If you're in it for the money for the deacons... Fun fact, if you're someone there, man, I want to be a deacon one day because I want to be in it for the money. Deacon's job is free. Forever and always. Free. There's no money in it. Zero. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> There's no money in it. And so they, they can't be, they're not in it for dishonest gain. So mean, meaning this, they're not a lover of money. They're servants. They're, they're, and they're also uh, financially content. This is, if you're, if you're in it, if you think that, sometimes some people think uh, wrongly that, uh, the, the de- uh, man, if I become a deacon, one day maybe I can be on staff, and one day I'll be a pastor, and I'll get, you know, uh, worthy of double honor or something, and, I, and, and that's the, the they want to be a deacon so they can make a name for themselves, and if they can make a name for themselves, then maybe they'll get a platform, they'll get an opportunity. Uh, those, that disqualifies you. That disqualifies you. Number nine, or verse nine, uh, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, meaning this, that they have sound biblical theology and they hold it with deep conviction. Like they're sure about who the God, who the God they know, love and worship, they agree with him. Like I believe in that God. And so let them be tested first. So there must be a t- season of testing. There's a season of testing, meaning that whenever you see uh, uh, anyone who's installed as a deacon, you'll probably look around and go, man, they've been serving the church for years. Exactly. They're being tested. They're being tested. And, and not tested like a pass or fail. It's like what we're looking is for authentic, real deaconing without a title. Because most of the work that the deacons do are behind the scenes and no one sees. They don't get the attention. This is like the one Sunday where they're going to get all the attention. Like it's the only Sunday ever. Like in probably, like Paul only addresses the deacons a few times. The entire Bible. He's, and he goes into lengthy detail here. And so here they're to be tested first. And then let, then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, meaning they, there needs to be proven faithfulness over time. Now, I want to be clear. What we're, what we're not looking at as a deacon is perfection, that they don't sin, that they like, they're, not, they're, they're better than Jesus. I mean, Jesus was sinless, so they're equal to Jesus in that regard. 
No, these are what qualifies a man or, or, or one to be a deacon is, is this, is that they are repentant consistently and they're not bound in, in service to their, their sin, but they're bound in service to their God. And so here, verse 11 and 12, uh, their wives, or could be translated women, we'll get into that here in a moment, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let, the deacons, uh, let each deacon be the husband of one wife, managing their children and household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, so real quick, so back to verse 11. There's big controversy, and many scholars, many people uh, take different opinions about what, what this means, verse 11 means. It says, uh, this, ESV translates it to their wives. Uh, the word really is, is trans, should be translated more to women uh, in general. And so there are three different uh, positions that people take in regard to, to this verse, verse 11. Their wives or their women. And uh, in, in what it is is, number one, that uh, these are just the wives of male deacons. So, so the male, if, if a guy's married, then here's, some, here's a brief qualification for his wife. Additionally, an, uh, some uh, view this specifically and only as uh, uh, women deacons. That's what, that's what, and then the third would be some view this as uh, women assistants to male deacons. Now, the office, and so some of you, depending on where you, what church background you came, you can maybe see some of those lines of what the church you grew up in believed. And so uh, depending on your background or in the tradition of the church you, you grew up in, deacons and elders may function differently. For many churches, elders are like a board that, uh, and then you have pastors, you have elders and pastors. We don't have, we have, we have elders who are pastors. Our deacons are not pastors. There are some churches where the deacons do the work of, a, of an elder. We don't do that. We, we strive our best, as imperfect as we will be, but we strive wholeheartedly to model every office and every sphere that we do uh, to be congruent to, to God's word. So the elders need to do what the Bible says elders are to do. Deacons should do what the deacons should do. We shouldn't mince those words and, and, and uh, you know, mix titles. We just want to be very clear. And so we want to do what God's word prescribes. So the interesting thing here is that uh, why if uh, the, the, the wives' qualification, so elders' wives don't have qualifications. So it's interesting here, we get to this point, if this means the wives of, of a male deacon, then what we're talking about is that the, the, the deacons must be married. If that's, how, if that's how you read it, is this is talking about their wives, then what is, it, is implying is that deacons must be married. They're the only ones who can be married. Unmarried people can't be deacons, which means Jesus couldn't be a servant or a deacon. It means the apostle Paul is right and this can't be a deacon. Those are just real two strong arguments about like they could not hold office in a church. The apostle who's writing this is like, man, I need some qualifications, but I couldn't be one. You know, this is what y'all should be like. So what do we, what, how do we view this text? We view it as that this verse can meet all three things. And this is not us playing, you know, being real loosey-goosey with this one. Meaning this, if you are a, uh, a male deacon and you're married, then your wife must be dignified. We agree with that. Elders too. Uh, if, you, if you're a, a, a lady uh, and there's particular needs that arise in the church that we need a deacon for, you can be a deacon. 
Additionally, we've had some women who are like, man, I don't believe in, uh, I, I, convictionally, I can't be a deacon, thanks for asking, but can I just, can I just be an assistant? Absolutely. We've used all three uh, in, throughout the years here. And so those who oppose female deacons uh, will do so by stating this. They will state that, that Paul forbids a woman from teaching and exercising authority over a man. That was 1 Timothy 2, 12. We, we went through that. We agree. We agree there. This is why we're very clear that our office of a deacon is not one of, of authority. It's not, it's not, this is a servant role to serve particular needs as the church arises. Now, let me give you uh, um, teaching, however, just to be clear. Teaching is, teaching is, however, reserved uh, for the elders. And particularly the teaching that Paul's talking about, teaching, authoritative teaching and preaching, is reserved uh, for the elders. It's to be done by elders, and, it's, and he's talking about in the context of church gathering, worship, corporate worship like we are here today, which is reserved for the male elders. So the, the office of deacon, again, is not one of authority. And so for some of you, if you want to, uh, you might think that this is a modern phenomenon. And I've heard people say, man, uh, the well, y'all are like pretty like Bible-based until you get to your deacons. I don't know why y'all have, you know, female deacons. Spoiler alert. Uh, we do. Uh, so you probably already knew that. You looked at our website. Like that's the, and some are like, I just don't know. I just don't know. This feels real progressive. Uh, let me tell you. Let's go back to, let's, let's see how far back this goes. Uh, the great John Calvin. Uh, many, many refer to him in a lot of ways, but let's just talk to him. What did he think about deacons uh, or deaconesses? He says this, quote, For deaconesses uh, were created not to appease God with song or unintelligible mumbling, meaning they have a purpose, not just women doing nothing, not to live uh, the rest of their time in idleness, but to discharge the public ministry of the church toward the poor and to strive with all zeal and consistency and diligent to the task of love. Charles Spurgeon, additionally, though he never made, it's interesting, he never made uh, a claim, uh, like a, I guess he never had a moment where someone questioned it, where he had to like draw a line in the sand and give, give, give a defense to whether you believe in, uh, uh, that women can be deacons or not. This is a Baptist dude, by the way. He said this, referring to deaconesses, so female deacons, as, he says this, quote, at an office that most certainly was recognized by the apostolic church. Like, well, those are two guys in, 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 you know, a little bit of church history, but let's go, I'll go even further, all the way to Romans 16, God's word. We'll go, we'll get there. This woman, here we go. Uh, it says, I commend our sister. This is, this is Paul, the, the author to Timothy. He says, I commend our sister uh, Phoebe, the servant, or literally means deaconess, female deacon of the church in Censorea. And so now, some, some have said, well, he's just talking in general about the term deacon. Like she was a good servant. She served the church like everyone's supposed to do. Perhaps, perhaps. I'm not arguing that this is a d definitive, clear example of an that she was an officer in the church. But I am, it, it is consistent that, that Paul is, it would make you know, little sense that deacons would have a higher standard of qualification than the elders. Uh, moreover, it would disqualify Jesus. Furthermore, uh, it would, uh, church history seems to indicate uh, the term de deaconess or female deacon that it played out through church history and time. Uh, and, and the scriptures do testify to a woman who, who was a, a great servant to the church. Now let me explain practically how this works itself out. 
This is, again, not an authoritative position, but it is practical examples. There are times that things come up that a man ought not to endeavor in in his deaconing. For example, if someone is perhaps homebound uh, or uh, needs some sort of uh, care or, uh, you know, in, in, in some sort of care that would require a better fit for a female to, to maybe, you know, care or, like, sometimes uh, bathe or do certain things like that, it would not be fitting for a man to do that to another woman. There's practically, there's wisdom here. And so there's certain areas where it's best for uh, uh, a female deacon to serve certain widows and children and orphans in, in ways in which I think, I, I will make this argument, I think that much of our moral failing in the church historically Let's name them all, the Baptists, the Catholics, them all, all of, the, all of these associations that we're looking at today came because men were doing, were in positions with women and children that they should have never been in, period. I don't care if they're offices, period. And so one of the things for us female deacons help is that it keeps men, our male deacons, away from positions that could not only disqualify them, but could lead them astray and mar the gospel of Jesus and harm women and children. This is, this is, not, this is practical, yes. There's biblical precedent argument, and then there's historical precedent. That's why we have female deacons, for those two people who wanted to know. Additionally, uh, this is, there is an office of a deacon, but there is the term deacon that we should all strive to be. Elders should be servants. Parishioners should be servants. We all should be servants, deacons. And so what Paul has done is now he's talked about the elders. He's talked about the deacons. He's talked about the context of corporate worship, how they function. And now he's going to make a transition. And what he's going to do is talk about now what a church, what their church's job. So if we're elder-led, so if we're elder-led, we're deacon-served, and we're part of the church, what is a church supposed to do? He says three things. A church must proclaim, protect, and advance the gospel. That is one of the divine charges of Jesus' church, period. And if the church punts on it, then no one will pick up the ball. No one's coming to pick up the, the ball to proclaim the gospel other than the church. It's our job, it's the church's job to, to, to do this. In, in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon. He's telling Timothy, man, I hope to see you. Paul is on house arrest. He can't go see Timothy, but he longs to see him. He says, I'm writing to you these things so that if I delay, uh, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I've said all the stuff I've talked to you about so that if I can't make it to you, Timothy, I really want to see you. I really want uh, to, 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 to go to church, be a part of community, do life with you. Timothy, if I can't get there, if I can't get there, you've got to still put into practice what I've told you. You've got to still put into practice what I've told you. And he says this, that, that which is the... the, the is how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. A pillar, a buttress of truth. Paul loves Timothy. Paul wants to see Timothy. Paul wants to minister with Timothy. But if he can't, he's like, the work's still got to get done. I think we have to understand this because oftentimes uh, some of us will only engage in ministry and do things when we have, other, when we have everyone is kind of going on board with it. 
It's like if everyone's going to be praying, like I'll pray. If everyone's going to be serving, man, I'll serve. What happens if, if no one is? What happens if, if no one is? Paul tells Timothy, you still got to do the work. You still got to do the work. And so he's moving from church structure to now talking about the churches. He says it's the, the church of what? The living God. Meaning this, Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He is alive. This is great news. If Jesus is dead, then we're just playing dress-up church and we should just go home because this is pointless. But he's not. He is alive. It's the church of the living God. Do you, do you, do you realize that you're part of a, 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 a corporate body that, has, that was once dead but now has been made alive? Not only is Jesus alive, but if you are a Christian, you, though you were once dead in your sin, you've now been made alive. You are new. Fresh heartbeat. Some of you keep living as if you're dead. And when you're alive, throw off the grave clothes and walk. Follow. Obey. Jesus, you're alive. You're like, I feel like death. Remember the good news that Jesus saves. He's alive. No other religion can say this. No other, every world religious leader in all human history, they're still dead. And this is a point I make often. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Abraham is dead. They're dead. Period. Joseph Smith, dead. Keep naming them. They're dead. The next guy who comes up and starts this new religion, eventually guess what he's going to do? He's going to die also. We don't worship a dead man. We worship a living God. That's incredible news. It's incredible news. That's what the church, the church is living. When Jesus, I want you to see this, when Jesus came back to life, when he was dead and then he was resurrected, what did he do? He went and he spent 40 days hanging out with people. He, he lived, literally lived life. He ate food. He cooked a, you know, a barbecue fish on the, on the, on the side of the, the ocean. It was, it was awesome. He hung out with his disciples. He showed them his hands, his feet. He had conversations. This is what happens. When, when you are alive, uh, when you were once dead and now you're alive, you, you immerse yourself back in the community and you have relationships. You, you, it, it's real. It's, it's visceral. It's not just, oh, I'm alive. I'm a Christian. And yeah, I believe in Jesus. And I don't really do anything with my Christian Christianity. It's, it's vibrant. It's life. Imagine a person being dead, coming back to life, and, and then living. It's marvelous. It's a miracle. If you are in Christ, you're a miracle. If you've been saved, it's a miracle. You were dead in your sin, and now you're alive. So live. Jesus' church is to be living, alive, vibrant, in real life, with real relationships, with real people, on the move, active. Because our God is alive, on the move, and active. He says it's a, a pillar and a buttress. This is a, a pillar, you know, a tall beam that holds something up. A buttress is something that, that would protect a wall. This is, therefore, a church is to be this, this God has entrusted the church to be a, 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 about promoting or lifting up or proclaiming. It says, the truth, the pillar of buttress of what truth? Truth. 
The church is the one who's supposed to be lifting up and proclaiming the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus owns truth. This is our job, our privilege, our responsibility. It's awesome. But we live in a world that doesn't know what truth is. We live in a world that thinks everything's relative. We live in a world that will define truth for themselves. That's okay. It doesn't matter what they define themselves out and what they call truth. We've already, truth has already been defined by us. His name is Jesus. He says that when we know the truth, we'll be set free. And it's the church's job to proclaim it. God, writ, God wrote an entire book and gave it to us called the Bible. That he reveals himself, his nature, his character, the way he designed male and female, the way he designed the world, what he's tasked us and called us to do. He's given us the truth. And so it is our job to not only herald it, proclaim it, we're also to protect it and defend it. And so we, we proclaim it through preaching and we also proclaim it through our lives, opening our mouths in the spheres of influence we are in and telling people about the truth. So I, some of you, you, you turn on the news and you're like, man, this is not true, fake, fake news. We go through all this stuff and whatever, wherever you are. That, we spend so much time talking about the news and what's not true, what's true, what, blah, blah, blah. Let me ask you, in your day, day in and day out life, are you, have you censored yourself from the gospel, from the good news telling? Many, most Christians have. Like, I'm not going to say that. That will get me in trouble. I want to talk about censorship here, news here, false. Okay, cool. Talk about all that. That's what you want to talk about? Cool. I want you to talk about Jesus, the truth that sets people free. We're all many news stations going about our day. I don't like that news station. Well, you are one. Do you lie? Do you not tell the truth? Do you falsify things? You're trying to put on a face so that people think you're better than you really are? Or do you like, oh, when it comes to controversial stuff, I'm not going to say anything because, you know, that's the kind of news station I am. I don't want to be labeled a narrow-minded bigot like Jesus was. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be friendly. I want to be friendly. You are a news station traveling about your life and your day. The question is, what news are you sharing? Am I saying that you can't talk about other things? No, what I'm saying is you must talk about one thing. That's Jesus. It is the privilege, it is the responsibility of the church to to put up, to proclaim, to promote the gospel truth. It is the only thing that can save. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says to the church, he's like, I'm excited uh, to preach the gospel. Why? Because it's the gospel that has the power to save. You just gotta tell the news. The news saves Spurgeon, the Puritans, often said this, that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Meaning that the gospel uh, that, that melts someone's heart where they believe, the, the truth of the gospel that has the power to save. Some people get saved when they hear about the truth of Jesus. Some people get hardened, like Pharaoh, like Judas. Our job is to not melt the ice or harden the clay. Our job is to just proclaim the truth. Put it up. Lift it up. A pillar. Make it to where people can see it. Get out of the way. Distractions. This is the truth. It sets free. Additionally, we are to protect the truth. 
meaning that the church is, and through its elders, are to guard the truth. Paul is writing to Timothy in the context where there's false teachers, false doctrine, false beliefs that are, that are, that are being spread throughout the church. And he's already tasked Timothy and the elders to protect the teaching of God's word because doctrine matters. Additionally, it's to help younger Christians know what, what, what it means to be a, a, a believer. Paul's been writing to Timothy as a child or son in the faith. But in addition to protecting and proclaiming the gospel, the church has a job to advance the gospel. Well, not to just, it, there, there should be gospel advancement, movement forward. Advance, the, the, the role of advancing the gospel is a divine gift given to the church. Not that others can't advance the gospel, like, you, like a parachurch organization, uh, this, but a church must. A church must. Or they, when a church does not advance the gospel, it ceases to be a church. Period. And many churches, unfortunately, and sadly, have outsourced advancing the gospel to other ministries. Like, ah, they're really good at evangelism, let them do that. Ah, they're really good at that, let them do that. It is the job and role and responsibility of the church to advance the gospel. We talked about last week that Jesus said that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against who? The church. And so what happens when we outsource the gospel to other ministries? The church gathering, like what we're doing now, simply becomes a country club. Or if you pay your dues, you get service. And a, ch- a church that is, I want to say this, a church and church members, hear me, be, I'm, I'm, I'm really being, I want to be clear here. A church and its members who don't see themselves as ought to be part of advancing the gospel will become like King David, who while he was supposed to be out at war, as, he, as God had commanded and as kings were to be doing, was sitting at home, not doing his job in advancing the mission, and it led to him overseeing uh, a, a woman bathing, not only then committing uh, adultery, and then also then murdering her husband. It led one little sin of disobedience, not partaking in the mission when he was supposed to be, led to a bunch of other sin and folly. That's what happens when, church, when churches and church members don't see themselves as participants in the mission. Now, do we all participate in the mission in the same way? No, but we all are called to be participants in the mission. If we don't, then we'll be seduced by whatever our sinful heart desires, like David, instead of what the Father desires, who desires many to come to repentance. That's what the church is, and Paul's really excited. He's really excited about the church. She is to defend, she is to promote, she's to proclaim, she's to protect, she's to advance the gospel. So he gets so excited, he bursts into song. And here, the last verse, 1 Timothy 3, 16, the battle cry of the church. He says it this way. uh, Great indeed, we confess, the mystery of godliness. He's getting pumped. He was manifest in the flesh, referring to Jesus, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up to glory. This was probably written, if you look at it in your paper Bible, it was written in verse form because it was probably a hymn. An old hymn, one of the first confessions, one of the first hymns, one of the first battle cries of the church. It was a hymn because it was, to, to con- it was a, a song sung in the church to make ready for their hearts to, to be about what he had just said. Be, 
the church of the living God, who is a proclaimer, who is an advancer, who is a protector of the truth of the gospel. And I'm, he's so excited about it. He wrote a song, a hymn. And so it became somewhat of a, a rally cry in this moment. He had just talked about Jesus, his church, Jesus, his leaders, Jesus, his mission, Jesus, his servants, the entire church being a part of uh, this living family that's on this mission. And then he says, we confess this awesome, marvelous thing. Here's something that unites us. Here's something that bounds us. Here's something that we, are, that we put before ourselves to make ourselves ready for the mission, the daily mission that God in Christ Jesus has called us to. And he says, Jesus was manifest in the flesh. Meaning this, that Jesus lived a life in flesh and bones. He left heaven, came to earth, put on skin, put on bones, and lived in your place, lived in my place, died in our place, lived a life we could not live, died the death we deserved for us in our place, for our sins. Jesus in the flesh, that's what he did. They're confessing that. And it's, they're pumped about it because they got to herald that news. they got to share that news. Additionally, he says that he was vindicated by the Spirit, meaning this, that through the resurrection of Jesus, it was proof that he was God. Jesus said he'd be raised from the dead. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, that he would have been a liar. But he was not a liar. He was the truth. He was the way. And though he died, God the Father brought him back to life exactly like he said he would, therefore proving that he is not only God, he is also Savior, he is Lord, he is King, and everything he has said is true. It's true. He says this, that which means this, if, if, if all that is true, that means if you're in Christ and you're struggling in sin and you know, love, and trust Jesus, you've been exonerated. You've been forgiven. You've been washed clean. No one can offer that. You can't do that on your own. If you know, love, and trust Jesus, that is true for you. Forgiven. Then it says he was seen by the angels. Jesus, when before he was born, did, who, who showed up to the, the, uh, uh, out in, the, out in the, the field? Well, shepherds were watching their flocks by night. The angels show up, show up multiple times in the narrative of Jesus at his birth. Additionally, at the tomb of Jesus, when Jesus has been resurrected and the ladies come to, to the tomb, who's standing there? Two angels. And what do they say? Why do you seek the dead among the living? Sorry, yeah, yeah. Why do you seek the dead among the, the living among the dead? Jesus is alive. He's not dead. Why are you coming here? He's not in the tomb. We serve a living God. The angels proclaim that. Additionally, it says that that news then spread and it was proclaimed among the nation. The church was birthed through proclamation. Peter stood up, preached a sermon. 2,000 people got saved. It continued so much that they had to get deacons. They had to get elders and they had to start churches. They had to plant more churches and plant more churches. And 2,000 years later, we are here because of this news, because of this confession, because of this reality that Jesus is the truth. He frees sinners. And it must be proclaimed. It's not suggested. It's not talked about. It is proclaimed. Here's the news. Receive it or reject it. But here's the news. That's what proclamation is. It's not a discussion. It's saying this is the way. Jesus didn't discuss if he was the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am. Don't like it? Don't come to me. If you do, you get life. Anyone can be saved if but you can only be saved through Jesus. It was proclaimed among the nations. It was believed on in the world. 
This, what started really small with 12, grew to not just Jerusalem, Judea, but it's gone all across the earth to San Antonio, Texas. And we're gathered here worshiping the same resurrected Jesus with the same confession, with the same mission, the same rally cry. Do you see this? And then it says he was taken up to glory. After Jesus' resurrection, like I said, he spent 40 days hanging out, doing life, ministering, being seen. And as the Apostles' Creed says, after those 40 days, he ascended into heaven. He was taken up to glory. The Apostles' Creed further says that he is not only ascended into heaven, but he says, it says that he now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he's not coming as a sacrificial lamb. He's coming back as a judge. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is not returning uh, to die in our place for our sins. He's already done that. He's coming back. And there will be those who are of him, who are part of his family, who are part of the living church of the living God, who will be ushered into his presence. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth where we will live and dwell with him forevermore. That will be our judgment for those who have faith in Jesus. Those who reject Jesus will be judged with the same wrath that was poured out on Christ Jesus on the cross will be poured out on those who reject him. That's the truth. Period. You don't like it? I don't like it either. I like that Jesus saved me though. I, I like that you have the opportunity to be saved by Jesus too. Not only is this a confession not only does this affirm the life, death, burial, burial, resurrection, the ascension, and the ongoing mission and ministry of Jesus, it's a, it's a battle cry. It's a, it's a saying. It's, when we, we read it, we confess it, we're saying it's like, we believe this. And not only is this something we believe, but this is a pattern that our lives will ultimately and inevitably follow, right? We will be born, manifest in the flesh. We all were born manifest in the flesh. You will either be saved and therefore vindicated uh, and have your sins atoned for and be exonerated. You'll either be transformed, redeemed, or you'll, be, or you'll reject and then have to pay the punishment for your sin. So you will then, and once you become a Christian, you get saved, you know, love, trust Jesus, what happens? We're told the scriptures teach us that the angels rejoice. Just as the angels rejoiced in Christ's coming, the angels rejoice when a sinner repents. Additionally, this news must be uh, continued to be not just proclaimed to uh, the, the watching world, but it must be continued to be proclaimed to your heart. The good news of the gospel that Jesus saves is that the same news that saves you is the only news that can sustain you. You need the gospel every day like you, like when you first believed. It's not just, it's not just fire insurance. It's sustainable life has the power to save and has the power to sustain. Meaning that if you find yourself in sin and folly, you know that there's redemption and forgiveness and Jesus will always welcome you back. Turn around, come to him. So not only must it be uh, proclaimed to the nation, it must be continued to believe on in your heart so that, and then proclaimed to others so that more people can believe. And then one day, just like Jesus was ascended into heaven, one day you and I will be taken into glory. The question is not where will, if you're a Christian, the question is not where will you spend your eternity? The question is how will you live your life? 
Whose mission will you be on? What focus, what trajectory, what, how will you lead your family? How will you lead yourself? Who will you worship? For me, for my house, encouragement to you as well, we'll worship the Lord. We'll worship the Lord. Jesus was manifest in the flesh. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was seen by the angels. Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. Jesus was believed on in the world. And Jesus was taken up to glory. And one day he will take us into glory. And one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. One day there will be only forever and always sinless living. And it will abound. And until then, we have a mission to live that life, heaven on earth. That's what Jesus says. We're to pray to live on earth as it is in heaven. We're to live by the kingdom principles here on earth. And I want you to know it's a battle. It's a war. It's hard. Like life being a Christian is hard. Life is hard, yes, because you're in a war. You were born and conceived in a war zone. And so... This, this confession matters. This confession not just tells you what you believe, but it also encourages you and sustains you. Because if Jesus said it would, if it's true, it's true. If Jesus said he would die and raise again and he did, it's true. It means Jesus said he'll, come, he'll return one day. He will return. So I want to encourage you as we, we end our time today. I want to encourage you as we get ready to take communion. Encourage you to, to think upon the, 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 who you are and whose you are. You are a son or daughter of God, a part of the church of the living God. You've been made alive. Rejoice in that. See your life and the mission and, and the task that Jesus has for you to, to not only uh, proclaim the gospel, but to believe the gospel again and again and again and again and again. And share that with others. Continually falling in love with Jesus until he returns. And so the way we're going to end is we're going we're gonna to take communion but before we do, what I, wanna, I, want you, what I want you to think upon is, is that you are, if you are a son or child of God, I've already told you that, if you're not a, not a Christian, you don't know and love and trust Jesus, I ask that in this time of response, you would ask yourself real serious questions. Am I going to live my life forever and always rejecting the man who laid down his life for me? Am I going to reject him? Or am I going to trust him? I know you don't trust a lot of people, but are you going to trust Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that we would indeed trust you. We would believe, indeed believe in you. I, I, I ask that you would indeed bless us. I ask that as we respond and as we think about the cross and as we think about uh, the length in which you went to save us, Lord Jesus, that we would uh, see that you were indeed manifest in the flesh, killed in our place for our sins so that you could save us, forgive us, redeem us, transform us, and give us a life, a new life uh, on your mission. And you are with us. You promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so I ask that you just encourage us deeply right now as we, as we reflect on what it means to, 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 to be a member of, of your church, Jesus, who's led by elders, served by deacons, and then the mission we have of proclamation of the gospel, protection of the gospel, advancement of the gospel. May we just say yes and amen and wanna be a part of that. And so would you give us directives, Holy Spirit, on how you want us to walk this out and, and, and particularly how we can respond in obedience and faith uh, with joy and gladness. We wanna follow you, Jesus. We want to love you, Jesus. Help us to that end, we pray. Amen.